Sorry. Hello, church. Uh, my name is Young, and we will be now reading today's passage from John chapter 8, verse 44. Uh, please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of, the li- father of lies. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning to you, True North. Uh, my name is Eugene. I'm a member of the pastoral staff here. I have the privilege of giving today's word to you. I'm excited to be here. Um, this is going to be an interesting sermon. It's an extension almost of a sermon that we had uh, during our guest speaker month. If you haven't been here for a while, we had some guest speakers from the month of August. Uh, we had a good friend of mine and a pastor at a church called Brian. Uh, his name is Pastor Josh Lee. Um, he gave a, a really good introduction sermon to the idea of spiritual warfare. What I wanted to do today is to almost give an extension of that. I'm going to skip a lot of important pieces. So if you haven't listened to that sermon, I would uh, you know, highly advise you to do so on our podcast. But Josh did a really good job of setting up who Satan is, his reality of how he operates. But what I want to do today is I think the most practical thing that we can do which is to really dissect how is it that Satan commits warfare against us? How is it that this battle is actually being raged? Because I would venture a guess that most of us, when we think about spiritual warfare, more than scripture or tradition, it's Hollywood that fills in our imagination. That for many of us, spiritual warfare is confined to demon possessions, Ouija boards, haunted houses, whatever it may be. And I don't want to discount any of that, but to get into the reality of, well, what does Jesus say who Satan is and how he operates? And I would ask you first this, have you ever been uh, under spiritual warfare? Have you ever been attacked by demonic entities or by Satan himself? Uh, There was a moment in college where I thought it finally happened. Uh, There's a Korean term called kawi. In English, it means sleep paralysis. A lot of Koreans believe it to be spiritual. I also believe that too. For some reason in college, I would get kawi or uh, sleep paralysis literally every week. What that basically is, is that you're in deep sleep, you wake up and you're conscious, but you cannot move. And you have no control of your body, but you can see, hear, uh, feel everything. All your senses are there. And I would have really intense moments of these sleep paralysis. One moment in particular where I was like, oh, this is... Definitely spiritual warfare. So I, had a, I, have, I, have, uh, I have really weird dreams, um, and, and they've been getting weirder with, uh, now that I'm a dad. But anyways, in college, I had a dream once that uh, I had a video camera, and I was in a dark room, and someone was demon-possessed. So it was so dark that in my dream, the only way I could see was looking through the viewfinder of my camera. And in this dark room, there's someone, a male in the middle of the room, face the other way from myself, right? So I'm, I have no idea, like, you know Inception, like, you don't know why it started, but I'm just here, okay? And I'm fully committed, like, I got to figure out who this is, right? Because I'm a Christian. So I'm looking through the viewfinder, and I'm getting closer, and the guy is, like, twitching, and I'll, I get closer, and I say, oh, he's, he's Korean, so I must know him. And then, uh, I don't know why I thought that, but I, I'm, like, I'm, like, turning, right? And the only way I can see is through the viewfinder. And as I turn, I look through the viewfinder, and I'm shocked. 
the person standing in the middle is me, right? I'm like, what the? And I, and I, and I remember in my dream, I dropped my camera, and like Inception, I woke up. And then I was under sleep paralysis. And I'll tell you, this was the weirdest experience. So back then, there was an artist called Shane and Shane. They were kind of like, uh, they're a Christian artist, very popular. Um, they have a song called, um, I forgot what it was. But anyways, they're singing a song. And I, it's a song, I'm always playing music while I'm sleeping. And I wake up from that dream. I'm already kind of like, what's going on? And I'm under sleep paralysis. And I'm hearing that song. And as I'm hearing that song, it sounds like someone is whispering really off key into my ear that same song. Like, like kind of mocking me, right? And for some reason, the first thought I was like, oh, like, this is like demons, right? This is awesome, right? And I was just stuck there. And I was like, oh, this is kind of freaky. And then all of a sudden, like after five minutes, I finally regained control, right? There's no, uh, there's no ending to that. That's, I just want to tell you that story, okay? For a long time, I thought like, oh, that, that's spiritual warfare. Like these crazy moments of supernatural entities, of demon possessions, of hearing actual audible voices. And I would venture a guess to most of you too, that's what many of us, whether you believe in God or not, how long you've been in the church, that's what we believe spiritual warfare to be. And I wanna make it clear, I do think that does exist, especially in areas where Christ is not preached or central. But I would argue this today. The very fact that we think that is the mass extent of what spiritual warfare is, is that we're undermining and we're also under-evaluating how Satan is actually attacking us. That, that actually, when you read a scripture, although there's elements of that, that's not the main way Satan carries out his own warfare in scripture in the Old and New Testament. As mentioned beforehand, I think spiritual warfare is one of the most untaught realities within the Western church within secular people, and because of that, we often care little or none at all. I hope today is this. I want to break down very clearly, not what Hollywood tells us, not what stories tell you, but how Jesus tells you, this is how Satan is coming after you. And if this is the case, then what are we supposed to do about it? Because I would argue this, and I hope to surprise you. The answer is not as diabolical as it seems, but it's much more dangerous than you would think. Um, Three points today that I want to get through. One is that we're living in an unconventional warfare. Second, I want to dissect Satan's lies. And third, I want to learn how we can fight back. But first is this unconventional warfare. Just as it's crucial to accept Jesus for who he says he is, it is, I think, almost as crucial to also accept who he says Satan is. So, and I've preached about this before, but many of us, when we come to Jesus, we have our own views. Oh, he's a good teacher. He's a good friend. He's a good, you know, TED Talk guy. On the, in the, he's a great guy. But who does Jesus actually say he is? He says, I am your savior. At the same time, he's also very clear in this passage, this is your adversary. This is what spiritual warfare is. This is Satan. And what does he say? He is the father of lies. Before we get there, I think we have to understand this, that we have to, as Jesus mentions, we have to have a very balanced view of Satan. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the beginning of his book, Screwtape Letters, which I would, if you're interested in any idea of spiritual warfare, I would recommend you to read. But C.S. Lewis writes this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can make about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail an atheist or a magician with the same delight. What C.S. Lewis is saying is this, we got to make sure that we have the correct view of Satan. Because some of us, and this might be the minority of us, but I want to make it clear. Some of us over-spiritualize everything. We give Satan way too much credit, way too much power. Especially for many of us that are maybe grown up in Eastern families or traditions, oftentimes everything is attributed to the spiritual realm. Like I remember uh, growing up in a Korean Baptist church, uh, there was a lady who took the youth group kids, including myself, out, and we're driving, and she's a very like, you know, spiritual lady. She's always praying in tongues in public. And I remember we're driving on the freeway on the, on the 580, and we run out of gas. And she pulls over and she's so angry. She's like already praying in tongues. She's saying like, Satan, Satan, Satan. And creating that Satan, right? And many of us were like, nah, you just forgot to pull in gas. Like that's not demonic warfare, right? That's just, you gotta, you gotta take care of your own stuff, right? So some of us, I think we over-spiritualize what Satan can do. And that, that's a problem because we give him too much power. But I would venture to guess the majority of us care little to none about spiritual warfare. Why? Because we have a misconception about how Satan attacks us. Like I mentioned before, we think that Satan attacks conventionally. So meaning, uh, you know, it, it's a war. It's, it, that's what Paul and John and that's what the gospels say, that we, we're, we're committing a war with Satan. And oftentimes the problem is we think it's a conventional war. So meaning we think it's World War II. I don't know how many of you got to watch Oppenheimer. I still have not, I, I hope so soon within the year. But you know, that whole movie is, oh, we need to make sure that there's this huge war and there's these extravagant battles and we need to have the greatest weapon to end the war. That's how many of us think spiritual warfare is. It's demon possession, it's the supernatural. And that may be true, but the problem is we think that to be true and if we're honest, for a majority of us, we don't experience that in our day-to-day -day lives. And because we don't experience it, we're like, oh, that's what I think it is. It's not happening. I don't really care. But you have to understand, Satan is not attacking us how Hollywood depicts us, but how scripture shows us. It's an unconventional war. Meaning this, uh, war in the modern era is no longer about taking territory. It's about controlling the narrative. Many countries spend almost as much money in their industrial defense with uh, like counterintelligence and, and in, uh, internet like espionage. Russia, China, Eastern European countries, they have literally people employed by the military creating troll tweets, memes to, for Americans to digest online. Um, there was a study in MIT in the run-up to the 2020 election the most highly contested in U.S. history, Facebook's most popular pages for Christian content were actually being run by Eastern European troll farms. It's estimated that 140 million Americans were affected by this espionage. Right? Like, I, I, I don't want to say that. Actually, it's fine. Some, there's theories, right? Like, oh, the, the vaccine is nanobots controlling you, Right? And look, if you believe that, like, I would love to talk to you after church. But the fact that a majority of people believe that, what does it show us? That lie or that narrative was from overseas, and yet it infiltrated us. What does that show us? War today is not conventional. It's unconventional. This is exactly how Satan has been waging his war with us from the beginning of his existence. Why? 
Well, when you look at scripture, Satan only appears twice in person. He appears once in Job and once before Jesus in the wilderness. Even when Satan appears in the Garden of Eden, it's not in his true form. It's in a serpent. He's hiding himself. Why does he do that? And even though Satan only appears twice, Jesus, Apostle Paul, Apostle John, talk extensively throughout the New Testament warning, Satan, uh, warning his disciples about Satan and spiritual warfare. What's happening? What you have to understand first is this. Satan has no real power or is no threat to God or his people. Colossians 2.15 uh, Paul writes this, Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and spiritual authorities, disarmed them, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul is saying is this, Satan has no power, so the only way he's going to attack you is not by force and by might, not by possessions, not by the supernatural entities, although that does exist, but a much more cunning way. It's, it's, it's the power of disinformation. The spiritual war that we're living in is an unconventional war. You have to get that in your minds. It's not crazy battles of demon possessions. It's not haunted houses. It's happening every moment with lies and disinformation. So how does that work? Well, point two, I want to dissect Satan's lies. Jesus, in this passage that we just read, very clearly describes this is what Satan's about to do to you all. He is the father of lies. He says that's in his true character. He can tell no truth because that is who he is. Satan or devil in the Greek, diablos, it literally means false accuser or liar. What does that mean for us? If I could sum up today's message, it's simply this. Spiritual warfare is not fighting against demons, uh, demon possessions or the supernatural. It's fighting against the lies by demonic forces in your heart. That's what true spiritual warfare is. It's not the exorcist. It's not these A24 films that are coming out, although they might happen. It's much more sinister. The warfare is being committed inside of your heart. We wrestle not with flesh, but with principality and spiritual powers. Why are lies so powerful, and why does Satan use them? Right? Even from the beginning, think about this. The first instant Satan attacks us, he could have showed himself in might and force, but he doesn't. One, he has no power. But two, he understands lies are so much more powerful than demon possessions. Lies and dis disinformation to your soul, they change who you are because we truly live at the mercy of our ideas. To be humans, we're the only creatures on this planet that need more than food, clothing, and shelter to actually thrive. We need meaning and purpose. If I gave my son and daughter like, like just food, shelter, and that's it, you'll survive. They won't thrive as human beings because we're the only creatures on this planet that need a story. We need a purpose. We need a narrative to live out, to truly thrive as human beings. And that's why lies are so, so, so powerful because they affect the core of who you are. You have to understand, Colossians 2.8, Paul puts it this way. Um, we're not, we can't be defeated, but he writes, it's not on the screen, but Paul writes this. We can be held captive by self-deceit and empty philosophies. The lies Satan tells you, that's what warfare is, and it holds you captive. 
And even though many of us are drawn to the truth of the gospel, Satan is very cunning. He allows you to believe that, oh, I'm, I'm here, I'm following Jesus. But at the same time, there's lies being told into your heart. For example, many of you here at True North, I'm, I'm happy and so glad you found this place. And many of you that committed are like, oh, I found a community that I can serve in. I found a people, uh, uh, you know, other believers that I can lean on. I found a community group that I can invest myself in. And you think, oh, that's a story that I want to live in. But at the same time, as you have one foot there, Satan's telling you another lie. Yeah, you can do that, but you should go to community group when you want to. At your own time. Like, if someone hurts you at church, like, hey, that's cool. You can find another church. This is how Satan works. John Mark Comer puts it really well. He writes this, but when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, and then tragically open our bodies to those lies and let them into our muscle memories, we allow an ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality and as a result struggle to thrive. Spiritual warfare is ultimately lies Satan are telling, Satan's telling you. So that's the case. What exactly are the lies Satan tells you? Um, much, of, much of this point is going to be from uh, the late pastor Tim Keller, who had a great sermon entitled Spiritual Warfare. And in that sermon, he kind of uh, attributes, this is how Satan attacks you. He, he reads this old book called Precious Remedies Against Satan, written in the 1600s in Old English by a Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooks. And I, and I got a copy of it. You can find a PDF online. And it's written in Old English, but as you read it, you realize it's so relevant to any human being today because Satan has never changed. And in that, what, what Keller realized is this. How does Satan lie to us? In two main groups of lies. Satan will either give you temptations or Satan will give you accusations. Satan will either give you temptations or he'll either give you accusations. What are those two lies? Temptations are when Satan gives to you too high view of yourself, where God's holiness is hid, and whatever sin is presented is presented as glorious. Accusations are the opposite. Accusations are when Satan gives you too low view of yourself, and accusations hide God's love and allow you to draw further and further away from God himself. That's it. That's, I think that is what spiritual warfare is. And much of it is figuring out which lie is Satan telling you at this moment. Because it's always happening on a constant basis. You know this. You, there's always talk being told in your heart and your soul, in your workplace, in your families, in your marriages, in your church, in your friends. There's always when you meet someone, there's a talk being like, oh, do they really like me? Oh, they, they kind of made a face. Oh, how should I interpret that? There's these voices. And who are those voices? Many, most of the time, it's Satan lying to you. So if that's the case, what are some of these temptations and accusations? So I'm, I'm going to list a bunch. And what I'm hoping to do is I'm going to shoot through them. But whatever you kind of gravitate towards, just, just simmer on that. Because I think Satan uses a variety of temptations and accusations against you. The first is this, Thomas Brooks, he writes a bunch of temptations, but I listed out what I thought were the most uh, pertinent to our church. The first is this, what, what are some temptations Satan can present to you as a lie? 
The first is this, presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Presenting the bait and hiding the hook. What that basically means is this, Satan gets you to look at the short-term pleasure of any sin while hiding the long-term misery beneath any decision of sin. So biblically, when you look at David and Bathsheba, Satan is not mentioned in that passage. But think about it, something had to happen. David, King David, is on the roof chilling, sees Bathsheba naked bathing, who is the wife of his best friend. He knows that. He knows that. Like, if, if, I, if you heard of a story of an adultery with the best friend's wife, it's like, that's messed up. What happened? Satan must have done something, because what did Satan do to David? He presented the bait and hide, hid the hook. Like, adultery, it's like, it's enticing, it's exciting. Any sex outside of marriage, it's, it's like, oh, that in itself, of course, it's going to be exciting. But in that, David forgot the long-term misery of having to actually kill his best friend to cover it up. Satan can do that. He can present the bait and hide the hook. In other ways, Satan can do this. In temptations, he can paint sin as virtue. He can paint sin as virtue. Uh, we live in a, in a therapeutic era, and, and mental health and therapy is all around, which is great, and I'm all for it as a pastor. But I also think mental health and therapy has also been twisted at times to excuse your own sins as somehow positive parts of your personality. So for example, Myers-Briggs, if that's, I don't know if you know that, there's like different ways you can kind of figure out who you are. Some people, including myself, will say this, like, hey, I'm not insensitive, I'm just a T on the Myers-Briggs, right? Like, well, I, I, I don't like to gossip. I'm just a type seven on the Enneagram. I love, I love talking about people, right? Oh, like, oh, I, I'm not mean. I just, I just had a hard life. And oftentimes what Satan will do is he'll hide your own vices as a virtue and say, like, you excuse it. You're like, oh, it's, that's just a personality trait of myself. That's Satan talking to you. Look to the disciples of Jesus. They do this all the time where they're like clamoring to be, oh, Jesus, I want to be the second in charge because I'm so pure in heart. When in reality, they just want power. We do this all the time because Satan tempts us. Other ways, Satan can overstress your strength and God's mercy. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a sinful temptation, there's a voice inside of your head that says, you can, you, you can do it just one last time. Like one last click. One last view, because you can stop after this. You deserve this. That is Satan. Other times it can be like, oh, hey, God will forgive. What do you, who do you believe in? The gospel, grace, forgiveness, Lord's Supper. You're good. Just do it. You'll be forgiven. That is Satan speaking to you. Others of us, Satan will, will tempt us this way, comparing one part of your life over another part of your life. Like you're grinding at work but your marriage is falling apart. You have really good friendships, but everything's falling apart somewhere else. And you're like, man, I'm, I'm investing. I'm good here. I, it's okay if I stumble here. It, I, I call this though, I, I deserve this temptation. You, you deserve it. You, you've been doing well. Tim Keller puts it really well. Mafia members do this all the time. Oftentimes when they're on court, one of the defenses will be if they killed someone, it's like, I did kill someone, but I love my mother deeply. Right? And you know, if you do that, please turn yourself in. But in one form or another, we do that too all the time. This part of my life justifies a sinful part of my life here. And that's Satan. Others of us, if you're like me, this, this one hits deeply. 
Satan shows the delight of sinners all around you. Um, Thomas Brooks puts it really well. By, Satan, by representing to the soul the outward mercies enjoyed by men walking in sin and their freedom from outward miseries. Look, uh, if, if you've been following Jesus long enough, you look around and you're like, man, there are people doing crazy things. There are people I know doing drugs at work. There are people I know cheating on their husband or wife. There are people I know taking shortcuts here and there, and yet I look at their life on Instagram, and it's great. They got a house. They got nice kids. They got nice photos. I deserve that too. Satan can often use that and allow you somehow to justify, man, if they're doing it, then I can go there too. So that's, that's how Satan can tempt you, and that can happen all the time. But I want to spend some time here too. Temptations happen wherever and whenever, but I would say this. As a majority Asian American church, Satan's stronghold against our generation and people is through accusations. It's through the shame that we're living in. That's the stronghold Satan has against, I think, the Asian American church, that he constantly accuses us. How does he accuse us? Some ways are like this. He, he makes you look at your sin more than your savior. He says, look at what you did more than the gospel. You know, there's some people, and especially if you're Asian American, you'll, you'll, you'll know this. You can get 50 compliments in a day, and you're like, oh, thanks. One criticism, one email, one talk with the wife, one bad text, one DM can ruin your day. You can get 100 DMs positive to that one DM, but somehow one criticism will all of a sudden make you fall apart. Why is that? That is Satan allowing you to look at your sin more than Jesus. For many of us, if that's you, for every one look at your sin, you need five looks at Jesus. For every one look at your sin, you need 10 looks at the gospel because that's how Satan accuses you. Others of you, Satan will remind you of failures and sins that cannot be undone, that cannot be undone. This is the beauty of the gospel. There are certain sins and failures that you commit that no matter what you do, you have to live with the consequences. God will take away the guilt, but make you live through the consequences. Why? Well, one, he wants to shape you, but that's the reality of life. And what Satan will do is he'll use that. He'll say, look, look, you, this is often what I hear with those who have committed adultery and have been truly restored. And even though they might be back with their wife or husband, often I hear this. Satan always reminds me there is a rift that no matter what I do on this earth cannot be repaired. And you know what happens usually when, that, when you're reminded of those failures that you cannot undo, you repeat them and Satan revels in joy. Others of you, Satan will do this. He'll, he'll make you think that your own suffering or your own doubt is a sign of God's absence. He'll make you think this, I am going through stuff. I have lost someone, I have lost a job, I have lost friends. I've lost everything. Or like, I just don't feel close to God. And there's gonna be a voice that pops in your head that tells you this, God has left you. Look at your life. What has God to shown you? That is Satan accusing you and making you draw closer or further away from God. Lastly, one accusation that hit me when I read this document is this. Satan will remind the saint of his frequent relapses into sin formally repented and prayed against of. Everyone has their own habitual sins. 
And what Satan often will do, especially in the Asian American communities, is he'll make you stare at the sins you cannot conquer and say, look, you cannot get over this. Give up, just give in. Give up, just give in. And, and as Satan accuses us, and as he tempts us, what are we to do? And I'll end with this. Uh, how can we fight back? Because warfare is, there, what it's being, what Paul and John and Jesus are saying is, if, even though war is being waged against you, there is a way to fight back. Well, how do we fight back? I'm, I'm gonna list a couple of things. First is this. Um, Josh talked about this, so I don't wanna spend too much time. But this idea of, in Galatians 6, there's the idea of putting on the whole armor of God. And when you read that, the whole element of that whole thing is just the gospel. It's you being reminded of who you are. Temptations and accusations, both of them, the only way they work, those lies work, is by making you forget who you are in the gospel. Tim Keller has a, he summarizes the gospel so well. He says this, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. Satan knows that. And what all he has to do is take one away. If he takes one away, the whole thing collapses. The first way that we can fight back is remembering our full identity, that we are sinners far beyond that we can imagine, but at the very same time, we are more loved than we can ever have hoped. And that identity will protect you. You know how I know this? This happens practically. I, I, I think I shared this before, uh, a while back, but um, before marriage, I was a very self-conscious guy. And my spiritual warfare was people's eyes, like looking at me. Right, because I was very like I just I like I I mean I mean I look weird, right? I look pretty weird. Like my forehead is really big, right? There's a reason I put my. If you see me not at church, I have a hat on usually, and there's a reason. It's utilitarian. It's to hide my forehead, right? And I remember like whenever I'd be in a public setting, especially when I'm preaching, I'd get super like like I'd be like I gotta really like put it down, you know? Because it's not a seven head, it's a forehead, like just like you guys, right? But I remember when I got married, and I'm wearing this ring. What is it telling me? That there is someone that she looked at me and she like really looked at me. She's like, yeah, I'll take that. Not only, did, not only did she do that, she birthed two of my childs, two of my children, right? She's my baby mama, right? And I have this ring. So now I can go anywhere. I used to be terrified of going to youth retreats and college groups because like those, those people are nasty, right? Like they, they, they really attack you. Now I wear my ring. I'm like, hey, are you married? Nope, I'm all good. What about you, right? I'm fine because I have the identity secure. No matter what you tell me, whatever lie you tell me, it does not matter because I have this covenant. Marriage is a picture of that covenant that the power can do against Satan's lies. Remember who you are. Put on the whole armor of God. Like when you read the whole passage of put on the whole armor of God, people really make it like, oh, I got to really take the shield of faith and, and I got to do that. You know what Paul is saying? It's the gospel. You are saved and redeemed by Christ's blood. You are a son or daughter of God. Remember who you are. Put on your identity. That's the first way to fight back. Second is this. Know your whole self. Know your whole self. We think we know who we are, but let's be honest. We don't want to know who we really are. We think we know who we are, but let's be honest. None of us really want to know who we really are. Why? Because who we are is not made up of who we want to be. Who we are is a mixture of who we want to be with our trauma, with our pain, with our scars, with our failures. Satan 
does not ever transform someone into an evil being. He works with the junk already there. Satan will always use your own past and trauma against you. Satan will always use your weaknesses against you. Last week, we had Jeremy Treat come, preach about how we're supposed to bring our weaknesses to God. You know why we're called to do that? Because if we don't bring them to God, you need to just sit neutral in our lives? No. Satan will twist and use your own past against you. Whatever you leave uncovered is more ammunition for Satan to spew against you. The more of your past you don't want to deal with, the more that you don't want to process, the more ammunition Satan has to lie against you. Satan loves shame. If Satan had an army camo-like uniform, that camouflage would be shame because he can just blend right in. Whatever you don't uncover will rot and Satan will use against you. I'm going to use this example to make this clear in your minds. And I've talked about this before. Um, I'm, I'm not the cleanest of guys. My car is a mess, but in college it was a mess. Like you couldn't see the ground because there's like, like, you know, finals, papers and all that stuff. And I remember for a while in college, I'm driving my Honda Accord and it smells like someone baked a large pizza in my car for three months straight. And I was like, that don't make sense. Because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm not a pizza deliverer guy. Like it doesn't make sense. Why does it smell like cheese? And I, and I was like, oh, whatever, it's fine. And it got stronger and stronger. And, and then like it changed to blue cheese. I was like, oh, this is like fancy cheese now. Like, this, this is weird. I got to find out what it is. So at one point, like, I got over my shame of, like, you know, you get messy. If you know the, the show Hoarders, it gets worse because you don't want to deal with it, right? So finally, I was like, oh, this is too much. I got to deal with it. So I, I got rid of my shame. I went to my back seat, and it was like a, a zoo of germs and bacteria, right? I'm just, like, tossing everything, and the smell is getting stronger. And I'm getting everything of, uh, aside, and I see a cup, a Starbucks cup, right? If you know me, I don't drink Starbucks, so it ain't me. So I was like, who did this? It's a Starbucks latte, Right? And if you don't know, lattes have milk. If you leave milk out for three months, you can, to your imagination, guess what happened? I picked it up and I smelled it. And I was like, either this is a cup of cheese or this is just rotted. And I opened it. And there was a rainbow like, like covering of all this like mold and bacteria that just grew and just rotted. And how did that happen? Because in darkness, everything rots even more faster. Satan will always lie with the stuff you already have and the stuff you don't want to deal with. You got to share it with people. The reason why we confess, not just here on a Sunday, but with others that are trusted, is to get rid of that, is to break the chains so that Satan can no longer use that to lie against you. Know who you are. Third, spiritual practices. I've talked about this a lot, but I'm trying to key this in. When you look at Jesus' life, you will see a man that was passionate about spiritual discipline and practices. He made it an effort to make it an habit, to pray, to read scripture, to fast, and to be in solitude, no matter where he was, no matter where he was. Even before he died, he did that. Why did he do that? Because he knew in a human body, if you just stay stagnant, you will only be filled with the father of lies. We have to commit ourselves to the spiritual practices. Uh, this is the thing, oftentimes we, like even scripture, and I've talked about this a lot, but I just, wanna, I just wanna hammer this in. The reason we read scripture is not to gain more information, but to access a new reality. John Mark Horner puts it really well. The key is not just to think about scripture. I'm oh, sorry, yeah. The key is not just to think about scripture, but to think scripture. To think 
scripture that in every aspect of what you're doing, it's through the lens of scripture. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, do you know how he gets rid of him? It's not through some magical words. He repeats scripture to every temptation that's given to him. Because he knows whatever you're telling me is a lie. And I have the truth right here with me. Confession. I talked about this a little bit even before, but confession is a spiritual discipline. It's a practice that you have to do. There's true power when you name your sin, not just in silence on a Sunday, which you're supposed to do, but in the presence of a loving community to break that shame. If you ever go to an AA meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, um, you think you can kind of just sit there and blend in, but any new member that they come, and if you've been there, you know this, they'll force you to say your name, confess you have a problem, and say, I need help. They'll make you do that at the very first meeting. Why is that? Because even they know the power of confession, that it can break the shame and cycle of addiction. In that same way, confess, pray, be in solitude. We don't do these things just to feel good about ourselves. We do these things to protect ourselves against the lies of Satan. That is what spiritual warfare is. Lastly, and I'll end with this, how do we fight back? Remember this, worship is war. Worship is war. Uh, why do we, uh, I, I always, uh, when I was younger, when I w- entered a church, I was always like, this is pretty cultish. Like the lights are off and you know, we don't clap here, but if you grew up in church, like you clap and you sing songs and you're like, like this is like, why are we doing this? Why do we do that? Why do we worship together? You're not just singing for your own sake, right? You're not, because this is the thing, I'm not the best of singers. Right? Some of us are off key, but some of us can't sing. Why are we all called in that light to all sing publicly? You're not just singing for yourself. You're singing for those around you. That, that song you're singing publicly has power because why? Satan has power, but the, pro- the, the thing is you have power too. You can tell truth. You can counter the lies that everyone's living through on a constant daily basis. Worship is war. Sing together, when we listen to God's word even now, when we're preaching, you have to trust that God is speaking to you and giving you marching orders in this war. We're in fellowship with other believers as we're about to have, like right after church. And I know this small talk and we just get to know people and just, hey, how are you doing? How was your week? That is war. Because you're reminding other people, even if it's not being said, I'm with you, even in the midst of Satan's power against you. Satan always strikes in isolation. In the scriptures, you'll see this. Satan only appears in isolation. In the Garden of Eden, it's only when Eve was not with Adam that Satan appears. With Jesus, it's only when he's in the wilderness by himself, Satan appears. You know what that means? If we're in community, which is worship, Satan has no power against us. The lies will not affect us. Satan always always points people out in isolation, but worship is communal. Even individual worship. When you worship at home, when you're singing a song, when you're reading scripture, that's worship. And you're in communal settings with a spiritual God that you believe in. Worship is war. Let me end with this. This is what spiritual warfare is. It's not demon possessions. It's not haunted houses. It's not a Ouija board. Could, those things could happen. I'm not discounting them. But what I'm saying is this. True spiritual warfare is there are being lies told to you every single moment of your life temptations, accusations. But what Jesus tells you is this, I have a better truth that can set you free. Let's put on that armor 
and be protected, not just individually, but communally as a church here at True North. Let's pray.